Welcome to Steeped in the 10,000 Things, a podcast about acupuncture, medicine, research, movement therapies, tea, diet and lifestyle, public health and preventive medicine, psychology and consciousness, mindfulness, and even fermentation. I am Dr. Michael Brown. I am a doctor of acupuncture and Chinese medicine and a licensed acupuncturist in the Bay Area. And hey, I'm Zachary Krebs, a third year acupuncture student. We're coming together today to look at a particular study, uh, and it will cover a number of topics. Uh, specifically, it will look at uh, research around acupuncture for non-specific low back pain, but it touches on a number of questions that come up as practitioners, as students of Chinese medicine and acupuncture, as scientists and public health researchers. Uh, particularly things like what is an effective dose for acupuncture? Are there evidence-informed bases for acupuncture protocols or point combinations or types of acupuncture? Uh, why do traditional point combinations uh, exist the way they do? Are they simply uh, tradition? Are they empirically based? Are they evidence-based now? Is there research about them? So we'll look at the study and then start discussing those questions and see what we can find and, and point to. And uh, it may open up other discussions and uh, other uh, conversations potentially with other practitioners or teachers down the road. So we always like to start with a little bit of a, a check-in and see what, what we're drinking, what we've been drinking as far as tea or fun fermented beverages. And I know you were making some tea. What are you drinking? I'm drinking a Dongbing Long. It's from the Tillerman Tea Company. I really like uh, this guy. I'm forgetting his name at the moment. I think Tillerman is his last name, but he has some really good prices on uh, oolongs and Taiwanese teas, which is what nice. I prefer. Um, it's like a mildly roasted oolong. It, it tastes like um, it's a spring 2021, but I just really like it. I brewed it really strong and it doesn't have that gut wrenching feeling that some of the roasted oolongs give. It just feels really good and clean. And I'm increasingly getting into the teas that make me feel good versus just the taste. So I'm really mm -hmm. loving it. What, what is that? What is that that gut wrenching feeling? Do you think it's the tannins? Do you think it's intense caffeine or, or a combination of things? Or That's an interesting question. For me, I have a pretty high caffeine tolerance at this point. I don't know if it's the caffeine. Um, I think it's the tannins just brewing. I like to put a lot of tea in and just mm -hmm. steep it for a long time. Yeah. So if I mess up that ratio, it's probably the tannins. Um, yeah, that's a good guess. Okay. Nice. Yeah, I've been blasting through a wild purple tea. It's a wild tree, so like a uncultivated, but um, kind of kept, probably like phoenix oolongs. But this is a, a in Yunnan, it's a wild purple tree, uh, purple tea. So in the Assam family, apparently, it's a wild type Assam. And it just, it's a really nice kind of similar to black tea, but it has a little bit more complexity to it, uh, a little less heavy on the tannins, a lot of beautiful aromatic uh, kind of fruitiness and floral qualities that make it really nice. And uh, it's been helping 
push me through in the mornings. And but right now I am because we're recording in the afternoon. I'm drinking some cider that I brewed uh, about a month ago, and it's been uh, carbonating or remaining carbonated in the keg. It's just a cheap cider. It's uh, apple juice from your neck of the woods up in the northwest. And I, I get the juice at Costco, organic apple juice, and I get five gallons and I throw it in a fermenter and I throw in some, this time I threw in some Belgian yeast and some yeast nutrient and some pectinase and yeah, it's really good, really refreshing. I have no idea exactly how alcoholic it is, but it's probably like six to 7% based on average average you know alcohol range of apple juice nice i was gonna say we could find out by how intoxicated you get in this podcast (laughs) (laughs) that's an indirect measure um but yeah yeah do you i have a question for you do you have like a yeast collection you know as a brewer do you just collect a Mm, bunch of different kinds i don't have time or space for that it's a that's like a whole side gig is a, a lab kind of lab slave or something to keep up with taking care of and properly storing and and sterilizing yeast but some people get into that where they have like dedicated setups for having yeast collections that they then will grow up with uh, starters and then pitch into but there's pitch into their batches but there's no I don't have time for that so I usually do dried yeast lately just because I'm brewing so irregularly at this moment um, sometimes I like to get liquid yeast it tends to be a little more immediately active, but the quality of dried yeast nowadays is, is amazing. So I can't, there's no reason not to for its convenience. So, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So this study, uh, let's pull up the title. I was reviewing some of the the details, but this is in the Journal of Pain Research. It's an open access, full text article you can can find, uh, which is really nice when it's freely available. It was published in 2021. So very recent. It is titled Optimal Acupuncture Methods for Nonspecific Low Back Pain, a systematic review and Bayesian network meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. And the authors, there's quite a few of them. There's seven of them. Uh, Lin Jin, sorry, I'm going to, hopefully I don't bastardize their names too poor, too badly, but uh, let's, out of respect, read their names. Lin Jia Wang, Zhe Han Yin, Yu Tong Zhang, Ming Sheng Sun, Yang Yu, Yan Ming Lin and Ling Zhao. So they are all working either at the School of Acumox and Tuinan Chengdu University of 
traditional Chinese medicine in Chengdu or uh, the Hospital of Chengdu University of Traditional Chinese Medicine in Chengdu, Sichuan in China. So this was published out of China, uh, but um, in a respected journal of, of pain, journal of pain research. So basically what this is, is a giant search for relevant randomized controlled trials from December 20, 2020. Um, and I forget, let's see how far back did they go? They don't say, um, basically they did a giant database, uh, search. So a ton of di different databases, including PubMed, which we're familiar with. Most people are familiar with, with Cochrane library, which is another database, a bunch of Chinese clinical trial registries and, uh, international standard randomized controlled trial number registry, the web of science, Embase, Chinese biomedical literature service system, uh, China National Knowledge Infrastructure, a VIP database for Chinese technical periodicals. So a, a large, broad search. And they found a total of 30 different trials that satisfied their criteria with over 3,196 participants analyzed among all those studies. And then assessing, assessing for uh, risk of bias, uh, they found that only 16% of these uh, showed a high risk of bias. And I think without knowing the specific calculation of how that's assessed, I think generally it's it's based on whether there's blinding methods, placebo controls, uh, things like that. So if it's only 16%, I'd, I'd say that seems good to me. Um, yeah, and there's even, what is it, in figure three of this study, I was looking through the imagery here, I had a chance to read it when I was doing my um, student clinic shift today. Um, yeah, it goes through all the ways that it um, controlled for bias, and there's an infographic there that's really interesting. It, usually it's really complicated to read through that, and the way they organize the data was really cool. And um, just another comment before you continue is, like, I really... Uh, liked how this, you know, you said there's 30 trials with uh, 300 or 3,196 participants, but that's after it was boiled down for the quality um, trials that could be used um, to reduce the risk of bias. So if it just took all of the trials that they're that were available, there might even be more data, but they're extra careful right. with this one to make sure it was high quality data. So this isn't just like a run by the night, you know, crappy study published in an unknown journal or something, which some people might criticize our research for doing. And this is definitely not that. Yeah. Yeah. Good points. I did find their uh, flow chart of study selection. So this does include the low risk of bias versus high risk of bias, uh, aspects. Um, Random sequence generation or selection bias was low risk for selection bias, which is good. Low risk for, or, or medium unclear risk for allocation concealment or selection bias. Uh, blinding of participants and personnel performance bias. There's a little bit of unclear bias and a little bit of high risk of bias, uh, which is I think common for acupuncture and these kinds of, of treatments. It's a little harder to blind people especially the practitioner and the personnel. Um, also blinding of outcome assessment, detection bias was low risk or unclear risk. And then incomplete outcome data or attrition bias was very low risk 
only a very mild amount of high risk there. And selective reporting or reporting bias was low risk and a little bit of unclear risk. And then there's other bias, which isn't clear. So I think based on just a general assessment of the quality of this systematic review and meta-analysis, I think they really did try to narrow it down to enhance the quality of the information and the quality of the research that was analyzed. I totally agree. And just to put it out there in case anyone doesn't know what a network meta-analysis is, it's basically a technique where you compare a couple interventions in the same time and in one analysis, and then you look at the direct and indirect evidence across all the studies. So um, it's actually a really cool way to, um, to research how different modalities or different styles or techniques compare to one another. And I think that's what makes the study really interesting um, because we can compare uh, things within our field to each other and then to like standard care and other things like that. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, thanks for explaining that. So for their search terms, they looked, uh, let's just go back, uh, sorry, to, to the main uh, background and question here is, is nonspecific low back pain is a common disabling disease that cannot be attributed to a specific recognizable pathology. So that means there's no clear physical diagnosis. There's no clear cause of the complaint of low back pain. There's no disc herniation. There's no impingement of nerves. There's no spinal abnormality. There's, there's no uh, muscle sprain or strain. There, there's nothing that can be found through diagnostic methods that can determine why this complaint of back pain is happening. Uh, and it's actually very common. It's the most common type of low back pain and low back pain is extremely common. So the use of acupuncture for nonspecific low back pain is supported by several guidelines and systematic reviews as this study indicates in their first paragraph here. However, the efficacy of different acupuncture methods for nonspecific low back pain management is still debated. And that's definitely something we want to kind of dig into. And we're excited about this. The, the purpose of this paper is to really see or start to parse out the different types of acupuncture, because there's so many different ways to approach uh, low back pain using acupuncture uh, and so many different techniques that acupuncturists use. So the question often comes up, well, what's the best approach? Uh, and so of course that, that has always a complicated answer. It usually depends on uh, the complaint, the person, et cetera. But there is a lot of variation, I think, among practitioners in, in terms of, I think this approach is better. I think the combination of manual acupuncture with moxibustion is better than acupuncture alone, for example, or acupuncture with uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories alone, or you get the idea. It's, it's a, it can be quickly, it can become a debatable, questionable, kind of interesting problem to try to solve. Like what's the best thing. Uh, and now, and now it's kind of, I think also a marker of where acupuncture research uh, has grown into is, is we know acupuncture works for especially pain, especially low back pain. Uh, now the question is what protocols, what forms of acupuncture 
uh, for what patients, et cetera, all these other more refined questions about how, how it works and what works best, I think become uh, of interest for anyone doing this kind of research. So it's really exciting to me because the Kool-Aid at my school is that no acupuncture form can be proven or is currently proven to be better than another style. So um, studies like this obviously run in a little bit of contrast to that um, statement that I'm getting from my school. And I think as the research deepens, we are going to find that different techniques work better for different uh, conditions in people and situations. I mean, that's just kind of a common thing that happens in any field, you know, the more a specific tool can sometimes do a better job than a general tool, but sometimes the general tool is just fine. So it's really interesting to look at that and then see in this study, like even if one performed better than the other, like in common everyday use would both be fine and better than nothing or still better than like opioids or something like that. Yeah, and they basically out of out of the results, the 30 studies, the 30 trials, clinical trials, the results generally indicated that fire acupuncture plus manual acupuncture, auricular needling, and electroacupuncture plus warm acupuncture were most effective in reducing visual analog scale of pain scores. So we'll get into the details of that, but that's really the results here is that uh, heat acupuncture, warm needling or fire acupuncture, plus manual acupuncture, ear acupuncture, and electroacupuncture plus warm needling or warming techniques were most effective. And it, it does bring up the question, like what is the different types of using heat in, in treatment? Like what are the best ways or what are the ways that we can introduce heat into the body while needling at the same time? So we'll talk about that later. Uh, but again, to quote their results here, the most effective interventions for reducing ODI, which is the Alistri Disability Index Score, which was a tool that was commonly used, were manual acupuncture plus conventional medicines, followed by moxibustion and manual acupuncture plus moxibustion. So reading that again, because it's a little jumbly, but the most effective interventions for reducing this uh, disability score were manual acupuncture plus conventional medicines, followed by moxibustion and manual, ac manual acupuncture plus moxibustion. And finally, manual acupuncture plus moxibustion was dominant in the cluster ranking. So overall, manual acupuncture plus moxibustion was the most effective for pain and disability. And acupuncture showed a lower incidence of adverse events, uh, only 7.7% compared to other interventions like conventional medicines, routine care, and or placebo, which had a occurrence of 12.24% of adverse events. So not only was acupuncture more effective, it was also safer. So they concluded, we found that manual acupuncture plus moxibustion is the most effective way to reduce non-specific low back pain and disability. Acupuncture is safer than other interventions. And of course, there's always the caveat because this is what you do in science and research is uh, point to the next study. They say, quote, however, more direct comparative evidence from high quality, large sample, multi-center, randomized controlled trials is needed to validate these findings. Of course, always want more data if we can get it. 
Yeah, that's a really good point that we can always have more studies and higher quality studies like the multi-center RCTs and stuff. But some of that's just logistically or financially difficult to do as our field is growing and changing, especially in the U.S. But I think we should totally do it. And I'm really excited about this topic. So as you go through this more, I might ask you a couple questions. Like just as a student, I had to research like what is fire needle acupuncture because I'm not being taught that in uh, my school. And then I started researching it. Like, is that even legal to do in Oregon? Can I can I heat yeah, up the needle? Because I saw this YouTube video of some uh, uh, an acupuncturist in China that I, I thought it seemed like they're in China that was um, just like lighting up this tungsten needle that was like red hot and then was like sticking it in someone's cyst and then like pulling it out so it's like is that something we really are going to do is that what they mean so it'd be cool to do some research on that or maybe a future um, episode on just like what are all the types of acupuncture because that's also really interesting yeah and it also you bring up a good point is that even a, an approach that i can take and if not are there other ways to achieve the same effect uh, without using that technique. Like for example, moxibustion, I was just talking with a colleague of mine. We both were in school at the same time. I've been practicing for eight years now. We really don't use moxibustion at all anymore and have moved away from it, but we still want to introduce heat into the body and, uh, use infrared heat instead. So, um, are those the same? Uh, they're actually, I think is some, some research looking at that. And, and that's what kind of helped me make the final decision eventually was that the benefit of moxibustion appears to be largely the infrared heat, the heat, the type of, of energy that comes off of, of the moxibustion. There's arguably some benefit from maybe some of the oils that are burnt in the burning of the, the mugwort, but there's also a lot of actual negative side effects to inhaling smoke and particulate that is produced by even smokeless, quote unquote, smokeless moxa, which is still uh, smoky and and smells worse than normal moxibustion. So uh, all of those factors, the benefits are far less than I think the negatives, at least in my opinion. And really that if, if the infrared is, is a major component or the main component of, of the treatment, then why not just use infrared heat from a lamp or a pad or some other source? That's a great question. I mean, and if you wanted the um, essential oil properties, it's almost like you could use the um, infrared lamp or heat source, and then you could maybe get um, mugwort essential oil or something and give that to the patient and, and some kind of carrier oil to put on Absolutely. the skin or something like that. Yeah, I think that would be even better. So looking at the study, do you think it's useful to talk about the background uh, on like what nonspecific low back pain is, or should we just jump into 
some of the the way they did the search and some of the results? I think really briefly, um, it would just be good to point out that number I put in our notes um, that as of like 2017, there are 577 million people living with low back pain in the world. So that's like a really big problem um, that affects a lot of people and causes a lot of disability. And there's a high likelihood a lot of us are going to get that in our life. But that study, that that number of 577 million didn't um, include, you know, just non-specific low back pain. That's all the forms of low back pain. So um, within that bubble, then there's the people who have, you know, non-specific low back pain, and then that's also causing people a lot of disability. So just the big question is like, okay, there's a population, all these people have this non-specific low back pain, what are we going to do about it? And acupuncture, as you said, is a really good technique. And so now let's dial it in to see like what form of acupuncture dose or frequency is the the home run or whatever for this um, particular ailment. And then that's important to us because we want to give and not cause side effects or make their lives worse because they're already living with all this, with all this pain. Um, that's all I really had to add to that. Was that, that statistic, the 577 million, is that in the U S only? No, that's worldwide. Global. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Say, I should have mentioned that. That's okay. Um, and then, you also had here that low back pain causes more global disability than any other condition. Yeah, they're using a metric called YDL, which is years um, with dis with a disabled living, I believe. So mm -hmm. it's it's measuring. It's like a metric for like living life without disability and with disability. They're tracking that. So yeah, it's it's basically a a very serious condition that's affecting people all over the world, and it's one of the top conditions that we need a, an, a, an accurate and safe treatment for um, that doesn't have a lot of side effects. So that's kind of the context of like, okay, we've tried opioids, uh, opiates, and we tried all these other um, um, kinds of uh, remedies like 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 we were mentioning earlier, just like rest, icing. Um, you know, elevation, all these other things, like what, what's better than that? Is acupuncture the winning ticket? So that's the question. And I think we're, we're definitely moving that direction. Yeah. And just to add more context from this study that we're reading, it quotes a statistic that of patients with low back pain, 90 to 95% have non-specific low back pain. So there's no known recognizable pathology. Again, the list that they give here is infection, tumor, osteoporosis, fracture, structural malformation, nerve root syndrome, or cauda syndrome. So there, there's no diagnostic information that's, that's indicating a specific pathology. So that that's 90 to 95% of those 550 million, uh, have no specific cause. And so it, it just becomes a pain condition with a specific area that is presenting that pain. And we know from other acupuncture and neuroscience research and just generally uh, empirically, acupuncture is extremely effective for regulating pain, reducing pain, stopping pain. And, and what, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, it's okay. I was just gonna slip into the, the next kind of uh, caveat or not caveat, a uh, uh, corollary or uh, but that that is acupuncture for pain and specifically acupuncture for low back pain is t 
typically one of the only or one of the main diagnoses and conditions that you can actually bill insurance for. So if you're billing insurance as an acupuncturist, uh, you have limitations and, and typically it's, you're limited to very specific, uh, medical diagnoses and low back pain and pain in particular are usually kind of the only or the key ones that, that get approved. So I, I think that's also indicative of the research behind it because insurance companies, if they can justify not covering it, they will. And apparently there's enough research that they can no longer justify not covering it. Uh, and that even goes all the way to in 2019, Medicare finally approving coverage of acupuncture for low back pain. So currently the only thing that you can bill Medicare for is acupuncture for low back pain. And unfortunately, acupuncturists aren't, uh, in and of themselves allowed to bill Medicare yet, uh, you have to be under the supervision of a, a medical doctor or other approved medical care provider. So but that's just, I think, demonstrates that clearly acupuncture for low back pain is, is a thing. And there's a reason that we're reading a study like this. There's a reason that uh, people often call asking for help for this. I just had a new patient yesterday coming in for low back pain. Uh, so it all makes sense. Well, it sounds like we have a lot to work with um, to go into on this particular study in the broader question. And I, I mean, I even have other broader questions. I don't know if they're like going to really fit into the context of this interview, but there's also from like the physical therapy world, there's a lot of um, research about the culturally constructed nature of back pain and just pain in general and like how the beliefs you have, the attitudes you have, like your social relationships, all this influences your response to pain. So I wonder if there is a divide between this research and that kind of more social uh, cultural research, or if they're really pointing to something really similar, but from different angles, because from that other side of it, you like the devil's advocate in my brain could just say, all right, like Americans believe they have low back pain for some reason and they believe it's real, um, but we can't prove that it's real because we don't have a scan for it. Um, so we can't find it. So then it's non-specific. So then we give them this like magical treatment called acupuncture. And then now they believe their pain is gone. So then they just like believe it away, right? Like, I don't think that's true, but you can see how that kind of like, it's only placebo argument could be constructed. So I think- um, this study is going to help us answering that too, because there is a lot of neurological evidence for how acupuncture works. It's not just a belief, right? But our beliefs do change our brain physically. So it's just a really interesting topic. Right. That I'd love to delve into more, but yeah, I, I wouldn't stick with this study. <laughs> I, I think that opens a, the can of worms of, of what is pain and is pain only in the brain or is pain a combination a complex of things because it, it yeah it, we could easily like go down many rabbit holes about the just based on these questions so we probably shouldn't um but i think it leaves doors open for fun interesting conversation so so we'll just assume that pain is real and people's backs hurt and we don't know exactly why and we're going to evaluate the different acupuncture techniques to standard care and some other things yeah Great. I believe somebody when they come and tell me that they have pain. And just to add some more 
context here, which I think is helpful and interesting in their study. They say here that um, basically looking at the effectiveness or lack of effectiveness of other standard treatments for nonspecific low back pain. Um, for example, paracetamol, paracetamol, uh, I'm just going to call it acetaminophen. It's the same. In, in this is Tylenol, right? <laughs> yeah, Tylenol is the name brand, but uh, yeah. Paracetamol, there we go, paracetamol uh, and or acetaminophen is apparently ineffective in patients with acute low back pain. And some researchers have claimed that non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, NSAIDs, and opioid analgesics may cause serious side effects such as falls, fractures, depression, sexual dysfunction, and even dependence and overdose deaths, which we know is, is a big issue here in the U.S. Based on this, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, CDC, and Prevention Guideline, the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention Guideline, recommends non-pharmacologic therapy and non-opioid pharmacologic therapy as treatment for chronic pain. And additionally, some researchers have suggest suggested that non-pharmacological therapies are more important in the treatment of persistent low back pain. Therefore, the use of alternative medicine to treat non-specific low back pain is receiving increased attention. And you'll see that in the, the um, treatment guidelines in the last few years too have, have been updated to include massage, uh, acupuncture, uh, and that kind of thing for uh, low back pain. With That's interesting. Yeah, because of the pressure, I think, and the evidence backs it up, but the pressure to uh, encourage doctors to recommend alternatives to just taking pills. Right. Um, and as you're saying that, I was just thinking like, okay, does that include like CBD and THC and like marijuana cannabis research when you're talking about like non-pharmaceutical pain relievers? I wonder no, if I don't even think look does. into that. Probably I don't think not. it does. Yeah. And those aren't usually uh, a part of the general guidelines for care as far as I know. Right. But that'd be an interesting study if we could put those products in there compared to acupuncture instead of just like acupuncture versus like NSAIDs right. or something like that. Maybe later, right? I think there, I mean, just off the top of my head, there was a study done recently, uh, but I don't know how it, it wasn't a controlled trial. I think it's more survey based, which is obviously messy, but I think it was a study attempting to assess does cannabis help reduce pain and and I, if i remember correctly it was a fairly large study and they said no it doesn't and i i don't know it just that seems questionable to me but yeah that's a whole other area of of focus as well so uh just yeah, going let's, back let's to move back on. to our study um just so you know they they used a couple of uh words here to search in the literature one low back pain lumbago low back ache they used two acupuncture moxibustion electroacupuncture fire acupuncture warm acupuncture needle warming moxibustion heat sensitive moxibustion auricular needling acupoint etc and three randomized controlled trial controlled clinical trial etc so they, they have a table that shows all their their full pubmed search strategy 
and you can check that out. It does bring up the question, I guess, like we were talking about earlier, or some questions around what is fire needling? What is fire acupuncture? What is warm acupuncture? I don't think they define those things in here. Did did you come across uh, definitions? As far as I could tell, the definitions would be defined sorry, in the individual studies that this meta-analysis was looking at. So yeah. it, it was just collecting the search terms and then relying on the individual studies to define those things. And I looked up a couple of them and yeah, there's usually just a standard um, definition for what they're doing in that particular study. But like, you know, I'm in acupuncture school. We never call it manual acupuncture. We just call it acupuncture. So it's kind of right. a subjective um terminology and then there's probably some translation going back and forth from chinese to english or right because some of these aren't originally published in the english language so i wonder how that might influence the terms but honestly i think that we could probably guess what they meant if we just went through each term yeah and some of these are pretty straightforward like manual acupuncture plus moxibustion or electroacupuncture plus moxibustion um, it was always a question, uh, what is routine care? And I know that came up a lot uh, when I was looking at studies during my doctorate is what what routine care usually means is like telling the patient to do stretches. It's right. basically like not really doing anything. <laughs> I mean, I just quickly Googled it for WebMD. So, you know, excuse me. That's but, good. No, no, that's... Uh, Icer heat, massage, ultrasound, or electrical stimulation. That's weird. Um, a, a specific program of stretching. Yeah. Oh, like a TENS unit or TENS something. Unit, yeah. And then spinal manipulation. So I guess chiropractic work or something like that. Okay. So routine and care could be a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, that's not a scientific list, but like we all kind of have a general idea of what that is. Um, you know, rest, put, get to take some um you know tylenol advil whatever um stretch out a bit maybe see a chiropractor get a tens unit i don't know if you can think of anything else for this list usually just like in my um anecdotal personal obs observation people just wait things out or just lay on the floor or something and breathe <laughs> or something yeah in america going to see a chiropractor i think is, is more common than going to see an acupuncturist if you have back pain i would guess uh, and then the TENS unit is commonly used by physical therapists uh, because they can't legally do electroacupuncture. But I believe there are some, uh, there's good evidence and some research showing that TENS really doesn't get down into the deeper muscles, tissues, and specifically the deep peripheral nerves that uh, you really want to stimulate to get a strong effect but that some of those cutaneous nerves that are stimulated can still achieve some benefits. So when you compare it directly, it looks like with, I mean, obviously we can't say for sure, but as presuming it, there tends and, and light massage and stretching and ice and heat are in, included in usual care here, uh, that compared to acupuncture and all the different types of acupuncture, it's not really effective at all right. or relatively not as effective. And so a great question would be is at what point would acupuncture just be included in, um, you know, routine care? That would be great. Right. I mean, 
if it just hit hit off that list and then someone's like, oh, okay, I'll just go see my acupuncturist. I'm just imagining this world. And then we could directly bill for insurance at a fair rate, not as like the lowest tier provider. And then right. we could afford to operate, provide this valuable treatment that people need. See, this would all be better than what we have now, which yeah. is a cluster, <laughs> more or less. Or a good example is the Medicare situation where you can only, as an acupuncture, the only people that can legally bill Medicare for acupuncture are MDs. Let's let's pull it up. I had it uh, on here. Here we go. So uh, physicians are the people that can bill. Physicians, as defined by 1861 R1, may furnish acupuncture in accordance with applicable state requirements. Physician assistants, nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists, and auxiliary personnel may furnish acupuncture if they meet all the applicable state requirements and have, one, a master's or doctoral level degree in acupuncture or oriental medicine from a school accredited by the ACAOM, and current full active and unrestricted license to practice acupuncture in a state, territory, or commonwealth, i.e. Puerto Rico, or of the United States or District of Columbia. So auxiliary personnel furnishing acupuncture must be under the appropriate level of supervision of a physician, physician assistant, or nurse practitioner, clinical nurse specialist required by our regulations at 42 CFR, blah, 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 some other references there. So I don't see acupuncturists in there. (laughs) Um, It seems odd that you wouldn't uh, engage the thousands of people prepared and most trained to treat uh, using acupuncture in your... But again, it probably brings up lobbying issues and the fact that the acupuncture profession is very disorganized and that we're all um, unable to really focus ourselves into one lobby. That not that the truth? Yeah, that's, you, a whole, that's a whole topic on itself. Yeah, you know all about that. <laughs> Well, yeah, my school is probably like representing part of one of the largest splits, you know, is saying like, we don't need as much training and we should get people out there practicing quicker. And then there's the people who are on the other end of it. Like you need all, you were moving towards doctorates to begin practicing. And it's just like, even in our own schools, we can't agree. And Mm -hmm. then outside of that bubble, it's like, okay, well, we all can't do this thing, no matter where we went to school or what license we have. So we kind of have like similar problems and we need to address those instead of fighting each other. But how do we get there? I don't know. I just took like a nonviolent communication class. Maybe that's the way to get there. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it can't hurt to use those techniques. So yeah. Or just beat, yeah. Do lay the beat down, down on people and just say like, no, I'm right. You're wrong. But that really hasn't done much either. So yeah. All right. So let's just look. I mean, if somebody really wants to dig into the the charts and graphs and details of the data, you're welcome to do that. I think it's boring to try to read and communicate all that via an audio uh, medium, but uh, I encourage you to access this free paper. We'll link it in the notes. But just reading their discussion here, I think is, is helpful. And then we can get on to some of our other discussion. So, quote, although there is some evidence that acupuncture is effective in treating nonspecific low back pain, and then they give two references, acupuncture methods are diverse. Acupuncture methods with low curative effect not only affect the condition of patients with nonspecific low back pain, but also waste medical resources. 
We therefore attempted to identify optimal acupuncture methods for nonspecific low back pain treatment. Our quality evaluation of 30 RCTs of acupuncture methods for nonspecific low back pain identified a few RCTs as high risk of bias studies, five out of 30. The aspect associated with the highest risk of bias was blinding of the participants and personnel, which we consider an effect of unique, unique nature of acupuncture treatment, which I mentioned earlier. Unlike traditional drug trials, researchers and acupuncturists cannot be blinded in acupuncture trials. Sensitivity analyses were carefully performed because of the inclusion of some studies with a high risk of bias. The results suggest that most of the results obtained are robust, which strengthens our interpretations of the findings. So I think it's important, and I'm glad they comment on that, is that a lot of RCT study design assumes that you're just giving somebody a pill and that you can easily mask whether it's a placebo or not. And when you're doing acupuncture, it's extremely important that you know if you're actually needling the person or not. And so it's, it's, it's almost impossible to... I mean, it is impossible to truly blind the practitioner, which then triggers a, a signal of bias in these measurements, in these assessments. So yeah, it, it may trigger a certain degree of, of bias, uh, blinding bias, especially on part of the practitioners. Uh, we have developed specific needles. There are different uh, needles that are developed to help create uh, placebo needling. And I think those are effective. And I imagine many of these studies use those now because they seem to be a standard where it's a needle that is designed to stick onto the person using an adhesive around the base of a little guide tube. And you can tap a false needle into the skin, which it doesn't actually break the skin. It just applies a physical sensation to the surface of the skin uh, and then as long as you make sure the, the patient can't investigate the needle or not, they can't really tell if there's a, a needle inserted into the tissues or not. Of course, if I, you'd have to look at each of these studies and determine if the patients were naive to acupuncture because there is a, a almost like a learning process with getting regular acupuncture treatment. You learn to, to know like when the needle has hit the correct area or gotten the correct sensation, the correct duchy sensation. Uh, and, and so in a study, it's, it's, it's obviously tricky. I know sometimes studies only select patients that are naive to acupuncture. So they have less risk of, of, uh, being unblinded there, but, um, it's, it looks like based on their analysis, uh, we're going to have to trust the strength of their interpretation of, of the findings. Sounds good to me. I'd like to get a hold of some of those um, needles to try them out. I wonder if I could get some of those. Yeah, I think they're expensive. Um, I remember seeing them at the uh, university hospital, the research hospital, Chinese medical hospital I was at in Taichung in Taiwan where they had access to them because they do clinical research there. And I got to see one. It was the German one. I forget there's a, a name for it. It's a patented product. Um, and it was patented by a German person. So, but they, yeah, they're super cool. It totally, um, it's a, it's a novel invention that I think solves a, a difficult problem for acupuncture research. So, just looking at the limitations that they recognize, I think is, is helpful. 
Uh, they admit to a couple study limitations. First, they said we collected data for the baseline and for the first outcome after the completion of treatment. However, treatment duration and cycle were not consistent across different studies, which may have increased the risk of study bias. So it just creates a lot of uh, complicated uh, potential for bias, I think. In addition, article language limitations, different languages, patient gender, choice of acupuncture points, treatment frequency, and other factors may have caused heterogeneity, uh, but we did not fully examine these factors. So those those could potentially mess with the, the quality of this uh, data and evidence and could be a place where somebody could, I think, genuinely attack this study and say, well, you didn't control for all these things, so it's kind of a mess. But second, they said the included trials were rigor rigorously evaluated using the Cochrane Collaboration Risk of Bias tool, but the trial quality was not very high. This may be because we rated single blindness as high risk. So they they baked into it a, a kind of a high risk because of single blindness, again, what we mentioned before. And then owing to its unique requirements, acupuncture research often involves single blind designs, which may have increased the risk of bias in the study findings. Third, we detected heterogeneity in the pairwise meta-analysis. Although we adjusted the random effects model, the results may be inaccurate. And fourth, one study was a forearm test, and although we broke it down into six different comparisons, each group had a relatively low sample size. Therefore, the findings of this analysis may be unreliable. So with all that, they still conclude uh, or still have a conclusion, of course, that this study provides substantial evidence that acupuncture is more effective in treating nonspecific low back pain than other interventions, which include conventional medicines, routine care, and placebo. Manual acupuncture plus moxibustion is the best acupuncture method to reduce pain and disability index scores in nonspecific low back pain patients. However, stronger head-to-head -head comparative evidence is needed to confirm this conclusion. We recommend that high, more high-quality, large-sample, multi-center, randomized control trials are conducted to validate these findings. So what do you think about these limitations? Uh, any thoughts about those? Yeah, I'm just reading through that again. Um, yeah, the first part about like choice of acupuncture points um, in the first, um, like under, it says uh, article language limitations, patient gender, and then choice yeah. of acupuncture points. I think um, that was something I was interested in just to see like what points do the different studies actually use? Were they using local points or distal points or non-traditional points to get their... Um, effect that was an interesting question to me um i'm not sure if that really matters that much because that's a whole nother area of research we could get into i think yeah and, the, and what you brought up about single blindedness in the studies is also interesting but it, we're also just facing the limitations of acupuncture research itself and how that's conducted and that also brings up questions about like why is it such a bad thing for the practitioner and the patient to believe that something works? Like, why are we trying to control for that all the time? Because in my experience, that's something that makes a treatment work really well is the expectation that the patient has. And then the environment that you're in and the clothes you're wearing and like how credible you look, and that's all really important. So mm -hmm. it's just weird that we're taking all that stuff and just trying to get it out of the picture just to see if like, only literally the needle does something or right. the, and so 
it, that's just the extent we have to go to. And I, and I see why that's important, because if it was all those other things and not the needle, then you could just say, well, I'm just going to pray over you and then that'll do the same thing. So we have to do it, but it's just so, you know, tedious and you pray or do Reiki or why not acupressure? Um, there's just so many questions, but some of those have their own answers. Like why, why not acupressure? Cause I only have two hands and 10 fingers. Like if I need to use a bunch of points in different parts of your body, I only have so many ways I can do that at the same time. And I think a lot of the effect comes from, the needles being set in but even that's a question like in some of these studies did they put the needle in and take it out how long did they leave it in i mean just as a student those are things i'm looking at to dial in so i'm assuming if i just went through all of the references i'd find out a lot more about that and the last thing was like it said like when it was saying that one study was a forearm test and they broke it down to six comparisons i don't know much about what that would mean in terms of it being biased, but it was interesting. I just pulled up that study really quick and they were comparing acupuncture and that to um, a muscle relaxer. So, you know, that's another thing that's probably commonly prescribed for low back pain, non-specific low back pain. But uh, then that just brings up some memories for me of like having some really bad TMJ and getting prescribed a muscle relaxer and it didn't help at all. And I just felt really drowsy and like out of it for a couple of weeks, but it didn't do anything for my TMJ, which also we haven't defined the specific cause of. So it's just really interesting um, mm -hmm. how acupuncture has been so helpful for a lot of these things that we can't figure out exactly why someone has them. And it really needs to be used. And um, I think we should be able to bill for insurance and do all these things with it. So I don't know, that kind of went off, off topic a little bit, but I mean, the, the short answer is next term, I'm starting my biostatistics class, and then I can probably go into the actual math that they're using a little bit more and tell you if it's like junk math or something. Yeah, no, I, I would love to have you kind of share what you're learning in that class, because I think that's an area where uh, we could all benefit from knowing more, understanding more. And I think... Yeah, I'll look forward to to you uh, charging charging through, struggling through that class because I imagine it's not going to be easy. Yeah, you can pray for me there a little <laughs> bit. Um, I'm math is not my strongest um, topic, but like at least it's about health and something I care about. And so I care yeah. that when I read a study and I'm interpreting the data, I want to know like that the standard they use to compare things and analyze it actually makes sense. Cause I know it's so easy for people to just change something and make data look one way. And that's what a lot of the pseudoscience kind of like false news peddlers are doing. So I don't want to do that. Right. Yeah. I think just to comment on something that you were starting to point to about pain is that pain we know does be because of neuroscience, research and, and functional imaging of the brain to assess chronic pain. We know that it alters the, the way the brain intercommunicates and functions. Uh, chronic pain brains look different and have less interconnectivity between parts of the brains than normal non-chronic pain brains. Uh, and we know also from this research that acupuncture restores that connectivity and reduces pain. So 
if there is any pain in the body, whether it has a physical cause or not, but especially if it has no physical cause that can be determined, it makes sense that acupuncture would be an extremely effective, cost-effective way to fix whatever's going on in the brain uh, that is that is generating the experience of pain. So in this case, non-specific low back pain, or in your case, non-specific jaw pain, any kind of neurological aberration that is experienced as pain seems to benefit from acupuncture. And that still is being unraveled as to why. And of course, the nervous system is still being explored and understood, but it definitely is a consistent, repeated thing in research and acupuncture, neuroscience research. And, and so it, it makes sense for any kind of chronic pain that acupuncture would be one of the better tools based on, on that alone. So completely agree and that's we're just trying to make it accessible to people and get them the treatments that they need and part of that was um, as far as my interest in this study was also just determining like treatment plans like like how much acupuncture does someone need and I know this wasn't exactly going into that um, we could just say like okay what manual acupuncture and maybe some moxibustion or maybe some electroacupuncture the other things that they're supporting um, is being effective, like, okay, those work. But then the question is, how, how many treatments do I need for that to work? And then how long does it work for? People come to me all the time with questions like that. Like even my mom was asking me the other day, like I have some chronic pain in my foot. Um, how much acupuncture will I need for that to go away? And that's, that's a really hard question to scientifically yeah. answer. Like I know anecdotally, you know, we'll say like, at least at our clinics, like come twice a week for, you know, up to 10 treatments and we'll see if we get a huge chunk out of it and then we'll decide to continue or change frequency or discontinue. Yeah. yeah. But why, you know, like that's just a question for me. Yeah. And I think the example you just gave and looking, I think it's also a helpful reference to look at what uh, Medicare has determined is, is effective because they're heavily they're relying heavily on the evidence available and the research available to make these very like specific determinations about what is allowed in terms of billable amount of treatment. And so I just wanted to cover that. I think for me, it helps give a sense of what are, what are very conventional medical people, researchers, uh, people, civil servants who work for the federal government's healthcare uh, organizations making these assessments based on the research they're reading, what are they deciding is a, is a, is an effective amount of treatment or a limited, what is the, what is the limit? So just to read for nationally covered indications, effective 
or services performed on or after January 21st, 2020, which was after they approved it. So this is the Center for Medicare. Uh, let me just give you a reference here so everyone's on the same page. This is cms.gov, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. This is their page for acupuncture for chronic low back pain. Uh, we'll link this in the notes. It's kind of a long URL, but they detail all of the people involved. You have uh, uh, lawyers, you have MDs with masters of science, you have uh, public health people with PhDs, you have uh, a number of different people. So you have biostatisticians, bio you have analysts, lead medical officers, a bunch of people uh, with different specialties, but all helping assess and make these determinations. And what they decided is that for the purpose of this decision, now I'm reading, quote, chronic low back pain is defined as lasting 12 weeks or longer, non-specific in that it has no identifiable systematic, sorry, systemic cause, i.e. not associated with metastatic cancer, inflammatory causes, infectious diseases, etc., not associated with surgery and not associated with pregnancy. So if you have chronic low back pain that is nonspecific, you can ask, if you have Medicare, you can, and you should be able to bill and a doctor should be able to bill and provide treatment for uh, this using acupuncture. They approved up to 12 visits in 90 days. That's what's covered by Medicare. Uh, and an additional eight sessions could be covered or will be covered for those patients demonstrating an improvement. No more than 20 acupuncture treatments may be admitted, administered annually. And that aligns with what I see with patients' benefits when I do a benefits check. Generally, uh, it's based on what is, quote, medically necessary. So that's a little vague, and I think it gives insurance companies room to decide, ah, this isn't medically necessary, denied. But it is also grounded in, in the research. And um, if you look at the CMS page explaining the research and why they determined this, uh, you can dig into all their um, methodological principles here. You can get super deep into the evidence that they an analyzed. Um, but I did wanna read their literature search methods and kind of compare and contrast with the study we just read. Just so people have an idea, I think that there is a kind of standard approach to making these assessments. Yeah, go into it. So it says, literature search methods, quote, for the purpose of this analysis, we reviewed systematic review meta-analyses of randomized trials for the previous five years. And again, this was in 2019, I think, 2020. We believe that the literature searches performed by these studies provide an adequate historical background to the subject matter discussed in this national coverage analysis. We identified studies in OVID and Embase, these are databases, using search terms such as acupuncture, chronic pain, chronic low back pain, systematic review, and meta-analysis. The studies compare the use of acupuncture, sham acupuncture, and or placebo acupuncture to either usual care, routine care, conventional care for low back pain, including medications, acupuncture plus usual care, acupuncture plus other treatments, sham acupuncture, no treatment, or waitlist. Waitlist is, is when you just put the person on a waitlist and, and say, you're in the study, just wait, 
and then you don't do any treatment on them. Uh, but they, there's some, it's a way to control for a separate group, right? Without giving treatment. So required outcomes included pain, function, drug use, and or quality of life, including sleep quality, which pain, of course, can affect. Of the references found, we read through the titles and abstracts to find those that met the criteria below. Further, we also reviewed references submitted to us by commenters and performed a hand search of bibliographies to identify other pertinent literature for our review. So they did a, a ton of of research, they said that our evidence review comprised systematic meta-analysis, systematic review and meta-analyses studying adults with chronic pain of the low back defined as pain lasting longer than 12 weeks. And we further required the pain to be described as non-specific. So it's interesting that they specified that. And especially in the context of the study we were looking at today, which I would say adds to this information, of course. And then, of course, they start listing off all sorts of, of studies, which maybe someday we can start picking some of these apart. They go into more detail and give the, the results. And I think it, it's a good source for um, a really systematic analysis of the systematic reviews and meta-analyses by people who are charged with the responsibility of determining for an entire country if a treatment method should be approved or not uh, for government medical services. And they decided based on all the evidence that it should be covered, but in this these very specific parameters. So it's interesting. It, it's a sign of progress. It's also, of course, from our perspective, like hopefully an, a doorway to other opportunities for acupuncture in, in more broad, for, for more a, a broader patient base or a uh, wider range of, of access, because I think that's a big issue. And I know your school really comes from a place of wanting to increase access to acupuncture. And that's a big criticism of the profession in general is that because of certain parameters, certain limitations, like you have to charge a fair amount of money for treatment, oftentimes that, that prevents a lot of people from even considering or accessing it. So hopefully we keep seeing this kind of research. Hopefully the acupuncture and neuroscience studies start getting filtered in to explain some of the whys and hows of how acupuncture works. Right. That yeah. I would love to see more of that because that's another, I don't know if you'd say debate or an issue in our field that conversation is just with more skill. Can someone help um, a patient get through an issue with with fewer treatments if they have more skill and education. So like, let's say I have all this education and you come to me with low back pain, non-specific low back pain. Can I uh, help you reach uh, resolution or what you would determine is less of that pain in like four treatments, but someone uh, might need to go get 20 uh, treatments from something that was a practitioner with less skill or um, less individualized time and just to kind of dial into that because I think the more we find out what's true then um, scientifically speaking then it'll be less of a debate you will just move towards the truth and that's all I think anyone should care about because it's ultimately about helping people reduce their pain not being right you know and so if that means that I have to like upgrade my education or my techniques to do what's right like I'm willing to do that because I want to be evidence-based. And so that's what's interesting is even in our own field, when I was 
talking with someone on Facebook about um, evidence-based medicine, they spewed out a whole critique of evidence-based medicine and wanted to use evidence-informed medicine. So to see, there's like, we can't even, we can't even agree on like, if we should let evidence make any of our decisions and then how to even define like what evidence is. And then we'll use evidence from studies that support us. But then when we have other things that have evidence like sorry to go into this like vaccine science or whatever, then all that evidence is junk, but they're using the same um, kinds of uh, systematic reviews and things like that. So that's part of my goal with this podcast with you is to jointly just like explain how like even one study works and just like how much it takes to put one together and then just how the scientific process kind of works. So then it's not as scary as people think. And And then also just to go over, like, you don't have to know everything to make a decision. Like there's like a preponderance of evidence moving us towards acupuncture for low back pain. You just have to kind of, for being able to treat it, you just have to look at it all. And and that's just really hard to do. I mean, it's not exactly fun unless you're like a mega nerd or have the money or time to like sit here and read all this stuff. So that's hopefully what we're doing is making this more digestible, but like, if you're already an acupuncturist listening to this, like you're already treating low back pain because everyone that's coming in probably has, not everyone, but like a lot of people are gonna have that. So this might just make you more confident about that treatment. Exactly, yeah. Which would probably make the treatment even better because you'd be more credible and confident. So I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah, I think you touch on some really helpful related conversation and, and challenges that we have internally and and as a community of people providing care is and I, I really appreciate that you, you've kind of ended there on like at a certain point you just have to make a decision regardless of how much evidence or or not you have or the quality of evidence you have or not and I think that's where you have to balance we're always having to balance uh, our desire to understand reality from a empirical objective a scientific perspective but also uh, we have to live in our own experience or the experience of our patients and i think it's it's this dance between two kind of seemingly contrasting but really it's a yin and a yang it's like uh, they they need each other and you can't rely just on one or the other you can't just rely on your thoughts and feelings alone you need inputs from the outside and we also need to be careful to not become overly confident in our own experience because we know that we are susceptible to bias to illusion our senses are not a great representation of reality or a complete representation of reality and so that's I think part of my appreciation of these more um, the the method of science science to try to remove some of these factors while admitting and acknowledging like you, there's no perfect way to figure these things out but we're always trying for better quality research always trying for better quality data to then help shape our calculus our our personal calculus for making decisions. And I know in conventional medicine, and we were going to talk about this, at least in our outline, we, we brought it up is, is the, the fact that in medicine, there's all kinds of examples of 
of hypocrisy in, in that medicine will say, oh, yes, we're evidence-informed or evidence-based. And it's like, well, you guys still make all kinds of funny decisions that are either just conventions that are no longer really proven to be <laughs> an effective treatments or they're mixed. The, the data shows a mixed benefit. So why are you choosing that over a different treatment? For example, the, the example we were going to discuss was how SSRIs, especially the classic ones for depression, the evidence shows that they're not really much better than, than placebo. Uh, so why why do people still prescribe them like crazy um they also have extremely high physical addictive qualities and withdrawal from them without care can be extremely dangerous they can have serious adverse side effects that affect your quality of life they can cause uh worsening of symptoms and um in the extreme can cause um extreme uh, suicidality and things like that. And apparently this is all an acceptable level of, of confusion and risk about benefit and risk. And, and it's just kind of like an interesting example of how psychiatrists and doctors will use these medicines kind of experimentally on their patients too. Like, because it's so vague, whether it's going to work or not, they're just like, well, take this, try this one. I think this one might work. Oh, your insurance can cover. Oh, it can't cover that one. Okay. Well here, do this one instead. Uh, uh, just note that it might take a few weeks for us to figure out if it works or not. And then once you've started taking it for a few weeks, you also can't just stop taking it because <laughs> you, you could get really sick. So it's just like people are willing to tolerate a lot of uh, interesting, I don't know, it just is a good example in my mind uh, and not to pick on SSRIs in particular because I do know there are people whose lives are are benefited by them. But it's for me, it's an example of like the evidence shows that it's kind of a mess and still somehow it's a very widely used treatment that people are seemingly patients are like, sure, doctor. Okay. I'll take this experiment for a few weeks. Uh, <laughs> okay. It might screw me up or it might, I might become physically dependent on it such that I, I have to like carefully withdraw from it, even though it make made me feel weird, but I don't know. It's, it's an interesting problem and i think in the context of acupuncture research in the context of trying to include research into our decision making as acupuncturists it just presents a little bit of a uh interesting contrasts that i think helps me relax when i have to admit like yeah well there isn't a lot of research on acupuncture for this specific condition but i do know how acupuncture works a little bit better now and and i do know generally that if it's a pain condition acupuncture is going to work great and for other conditions uh it doesn't work so great or, or it works kind of mildly it might not be worth your time so i try to be honest with patients when they call especially calling and like, what do you think? Is this, I've never done acupuncture. I have this thing or this problem or all these problems. What do you think? 
And I try to be honest, like I know it works really well for pain for these other things. It's going to be a journey. And if you want to go on that journey with me and, and try to make changes and, and benefit from treatment, I'm happy to do that. I just want you to know, like, it might not be an immediate or straightforward result. And, uh, I think it's just important to be honest with ourselves, with the patients and other practitioners too. So. No, that's great. And I, I totally agree with that. Um, and that's why I like, um, the emerging evidence base and also just, um, thinking about the evidence in general, um, just to give people, uh, an honest assessment of how effective any treatment modality might be. And just, you know, not, not just saying it's going to cure everything or help everything, um, without knowing anything about the current state of the research that's out there. But I've heard some like workarounds towards that, uh, or just people who aren't really interested in research might say like, um, you know, patient comes in and they just have X, Y, Z chief complaints. And then they might say like, well, um, I don't know about that in specific, but acupuncture can help you with dealing with your relationship to that particular disease or ailment. And so it's kind of taking more of like a, a laid back approach to like maybe addressing it by reducing, uh, you know, inflammation, stress, um, improving your sleep, maybe your digestion and assimilation. And you just like improve all these little pieces over time. And then that might affect the, the main chief complaint and, and something that we don't have a lot of research for. And I think for me personally, what makes that more morally acceptable to me is the cost. Like if I'm running an experiment, I like to keep the cost a little bit low, but if I know that something if I do it a very specific way is going to work for a certain thing, like that's a really big value to someone. And so that I think should be compensated for, but not outside of the scope of what someone can pay. And so it just gets really confusing sometimes like the, the morality of that and the right and the wrong, but uh, it, it's not even right or wrong. It's just really practitioner preference really in how we've all set up our lives and if we have families or not, or student debt or all these, it's, it's all about all that other stuff. If our grandparents need our care and I need to charge more money than am I bad because I'm caring for my grandparents in paying for their house or their medical care, you know, we're just all stuck in this really weird American situation where we don't all have healthcare, which is, uh, you know, it just, there's so many root problems or like low back pain. Um, you know, why do we, why is there so much low back pain here? Like we could even just go into a whole episode on that. Like, is it just that we're sitting down all day? Is it, is it that we're not exercising enough? Um, is it we're depressed? Um, is it toxins in the environment? Like there's so many theories about what it could be. Yeah. But I, I did want to say one other thing specifically about your comparison to SSRIs. Um, which is uh, the reason research is also good is because there are experimental medical doctors like facing like COVID, for instance, who are saying like ivermectin works. Like remember the frontline, um, what are the frontline physician folks? Um, yeah. And so they were citing their own like research that they didn't publicly release. So that causes a lot of problems. And so our goal is to give someone like a treatment that like we wrote down in our notes that like does more good than harm is pretty affordable and it doesn't take the place of something more effective. And like, if we don't share the data and we don't try to study it, then like, how could we ever know that? It's just like, I personally think that my teacher said that, or 
a book said that, like, you know, I'm opening up our own books for our acupuncture texts, at least the ones in English. And it's like, okay, this, this protocol or this point is good for this, 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 and this, and this, but there's no data there. It just like, it just is. So we're like, have to shape out of that, like actual research. And I know a lot of that's like clinical experience, but personally, maybe I'm, there's something just wrong with my brain. Like I want a little bit more than just like the book had a line that said something for me to like actually say that to another person with a degree of confidence. So that's just literally science there. So the scientific process rather. So I think we're on the same page there, but that this topic has really been on my mind quite a bit. Um, in particular, like we're talking about like treatment plans and stuff, just, I really don't want someone to just come in forever and then not get better. I mean, that would be like the worst thing ever, unless it's more of a palliative kind of management situation. But there's a lot of things you can get better from. Like there's a lot of thing acupuncture, things acupuncture works great for. And I just want to make sure that I connect with that more than people that might just be like strung along. So they're not getting different kinds of help they need, you know? Yeah. And that could be herbs too. Like, you know, yeah. Chinese medicine isn't just acupuncture, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. I think we can point to coming upcoming episodes by looking at this, these questions that we have around um, defining or, or asking the question about dosing of acupuncture, like how strong, what kind of sensations, the depth of sensation or the depth of needling the level of manipulation, how many needles, uh, the frequency of treatment, like how many treatments, um, are there evidence? I mean, there, there does seem to be evidence based on the two studies, or at least the, the center for Medicare Medicaid's, uh, determinations there. We could look at some of those specifically, those studies and also studies about what is the chi, um, what is the patient reporting? What is the practitioner observing and feeling? And what are the scientific ideas around it? And I, I want to bring in, in the future, some of the research I've come across and was including in my uh, CEU course uh, through eLotus. There is some research on, on some of that material. So I think we can bring that in the future and kind of share that. And we'll, we'll have to reconvene and, and look at some of that research. And I'm sure it will continue our conversation. Yeah, I'm glad to kind of like start winding down this particular chat. And I think we have a lot of good info here. And um, I mean, overall, I'm just glad that we've both survived COVID. You know? <laughs> yeah. We kind of took a break due to COVID. I mean, are they ever going to update it? Is it COVID tw like 21 or like 22? Or it's like, is it still COVID-19 at this point? I I mean, I know there's the original, like, well, I think that's why they stopped calling it COVID-19 because it's definitely, a, if you think about it from a genetic standpoint, it definitely is like different enough with Delta and even more uh, different with Omicron. It's very different. So it definitely is becoming something else. Um, it's very interesting. Just if we quickly have a minute on this, but the data that came out literally today on Omicron's infectiousness, like its ability to infect and spread and overcome immunity, seems to be extremely high, like 70% higher than even Delta, which is why they're seeing people who even are previously infected or vaccinated two doses of mRNA or two doses of of viral vector like AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson. Even those people. Uh, are getting infected 
mostly mild cases though. And it looks like this virus, uh, I had heard that the theory was that, and there's no confirmation on this, but because of how uh, divergent it was from all the other variants, like it's its own genetic weirdness, it's it's probably they thought either I've, I've heard people suggest that maybe it it leapt into other animals again and then back into humans or that it was in an immunocompromised person for many many months and was never fully resolved because their immune system is is too weak and so it was just allowed to like replicate and transform and mutate and become its own weird thing uh, but fingers crossed so far, it still is looking like it is more infectious, but uh, less uh, severe, causes less severe disease. So we'll see. Um, and that's the, the theory, but the theory, I think, and the hope is that it continues in this trend, but there is no guarantee. It's a myth. It's been repeatedly reminded to me that it's a myth that the virus will become, in, will definitely become less dangerous that's not necessarily the case it could mutate in a way that makes it more deadly so um i think it's right, important right. to let people know that there is no guarantee that it is going to continue to get necessarily less deadly uh, but so far it seems to be the omicron variant anyway but unfortunately the <laughs> it's going to be around forever because not enough people are vaccinated and not, you know, it, it can out outpace and outwit our immune systems. So it's just going to keep circulating. So. Yep. Um, I think we're all trying to be a little hopeful and say yeah. like, Oh, you know, it's kind of like, I think it's a I human thing. Yeah, back in the day, we were saying like, oh, well, it'll go away, you know, by next year or something like that. It'll just naturally go away. And we're we're always trying to be hopeful, but it does make me thankful we have acupuncture, Chinese medicine and herbs. And so yeah. we have other ways to deal with it. Everyone should still get vaccinated and get their booster, but um, we still have other things we can do. And I'm yeah. glad we're doing it. Yeah. And, and I think that'll give us plenty of material to talk about in the future. There's still more evidence that I've come across since we did our last episodes that this virus uh, is uniquely neuroinvasive is the term that I keep seeing in that uh, not all viruses, but some uh, are particularly good at getting into our central nervous system and screwing it up. And this uh, clearly is one of those viruses, unfortunately, and is likely to contribute to a lot of chronic neurological disease down the road so that gives acupuncturists a lot to work with unfortunately um, but hopefully also encourages research into that area of, of treating these kind of um, chronic fatigue syndrome i mean it, it begs the question how, how much research is there around acupuncture for chronic fatigue syndrome uh, and how effective can it be uh, how effective can it be in early stage or late stage. And I imagine because these are progressive diseases and progressive processes that the earlier you catch them like a stroke, the better outcomes you get when you introduce something like acupuncture, which relies on the integrity of the system to respond to the treatment. Um, if the integrity wears down over time, then it becomes less reactive, less responsive, less results become weaker. So word to that, it's like, 
fixing an old car or something with right. 20 things wrong with it. Like it's just eventually it's like, is this thing going to keep running? You know, you got to right. fix it as soon as it breaks down. That's what I've learned. Or keep it maintained, like get rid yeah. of your regular <laughs> acupuncture. There you go. I, sorry. It's my like pandemic brain. Like, I don't know. Did I, I don't, I don't, I haven't gotten COVID, but sometimes I wonder if I did, because I do feel a little dumber in general and slower in general than like two years ago, but I don't know if it's school or the lack of social contact or what, I, maybe I have a virus in my brain. I'm not sure. Honestly, I'd put money on the lack of social interaction as affecting. Cause we know that that's uh, indicated for people with dementia and stuff that lack of social interaction accelerates cognitive decline so maybe you're onto something there i may i maybe i have early onset dementia probably not i hope not. <laughs> i'm gonna look up web md to make sure that i don't have it but <laughs> yikes um, anyways i'll man. never see you again <laughs>